Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton. My guest today is Sean Scanlon, who, after serving four terms in the Connecticut State Legislature, was elected statewide as comptroller this past November. He's the youngest person ever elected to this position. Sean and I talked about how a book report put him on a path to public service and his passion for addressing seemingly intractable problems. For example, as a legislator, he tackled the high cost of health care and the impact it has on working families like his own. More recently, he successfully reformed the Connecticut Municipal Employees Retirement System with bipartisan support from the legislature. We talked about how solving problems is the key to changing people's perceptions of government and why that's so important for the health of our democracy. He's got some great advice. I came away inspired and hope you will too. Sean Scanlon, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Great to be here, Debbie. Thanks for having me. Of course. It's so fun to see you. Our listeners aren't seeing you, but I'm seeing you. And it's the first time I'm seeing you since you became Comptroller of Connecticut. You were elected in November. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And I thought maybe as we get started, there's lots I want to talk to you about that you've done over the course of your career and that you're doing now. But Comptroller is one of those jobs that I'm not sure even everybody really knows what a Comptroller. So what do you do for the state of Connecticut as Comptroller? Well, yeah, definitely one of those jobs where people are like, I think that has something to do with money, but I'm not really sure. As comptroller, I'm essentially the chief financial officer of the state of Connecticut, one of six statewide elected officials here in the state. And what I've found is that there are actually nine elected state comptrollers in the country. Five of them are Democrats right now, four of them are Republicans. And each of the five Democrats do widely different things. So Brooke Lerman, who's another New Dealer, who was also elected comptroller last year, she does radically different things than I do as the comptroller of Maryland. But here in Connecticut, I'm paying all the bills, overseeing all the state employees, auditing the state budget, procuring health care and negotiating health care for 300,000 different people. So doing a lot of really cool, interesting stuff and enjoying the job six months into it. That's amazing. I don't think I knew that they were that vastly different of jobs, but I'm glad I asked that question. That's really interesting. (laughs) And I think you and Brooke are both doing fantastic jobs. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about on the front end about how you got into public service. I want to dive in later to some of the policy work you've been working on, but it's interesting. Your father was a police officer. So you had a model of somebody that was working in public service, though not elected office. And after you got out of college, you started working for Senator Chris Murphy. Did you know that politics was your calling or what? What was your thinking about that? I definitely did not know that politics was my calling. And uh, my parents were very apolitical, like they would vote, but it was never a topic of discussion around the dinner table. And when I was 16 years old, I randomly did a book report about Bobby Kennedy, senior, I should add now. 
Right. And for whatever reason, this book report just changed my life. And it sounds very corny and West Wingy, but this whole idea that there was this job where you could go out and try to help people who were voiceless and solve these big public challenges and try to inspire people to sort of do public service was just really interesting. And so I became sort of like the political nerd of my high school. I read every book in our library about the Kennedy family and then other politicians. And then the day after I graduated from high school, there was a article in our local newspaper that a guy who had worked for Bobby Kennedy was going to run for the state Senate in my district. And so I literally called that guy in the phone book and I just said, hey, listen, I'm 17. I don't know anything about anything, but you were for my hero and I would love to work on your campaign. And that guy gave me my first job in politics as his sort of volunteer driver. And I spent that summer and that fall helping his campaign and he beat a 14-year incumbent that year and sort of became my first political mentor. And to bring it all the way back full circle, when I got back from college, I thought that I wanted to be a lawyer and I worked in law for a little while and realized it wasn't for me. And I called that state senator and I said, hey, you served in the state senate with this guy named Chris Murphy. He just got elected to Congress. It seems like he's kind of going places. Can you call him and see if he had any job openings? And uh, he called me and he did. And he had a job opening for his driver position, which is the best job in politics for anyone listening. You learn a lot. And I then worked for Chris for 10 years after that. So it was quite an amazing story. Quite the journey. I love that story. And just to follow up on that, you know, when I started working in politics too, I was not a driver, but I was someone who traveled with the candidate or the elected official. I totally agree with you. You just learn so much. You're a sponge. You're you're just privy to things that different you know, other people are not, conversations that other people are yeah. not. And it's such a great way to learn. So I agree with you. If anybody's listening out there that's just an aspiring elected official, get a you know, a campaign or an elect on even on the official side, those types of jobs are super helpful, actually. They're super helpful. And there's a tendency, especially if you're young, that you got to get the best job and everyone wants to be the speechwriter or the chief of staff or start really high. But you actually learn a lot more, I think, when you start at the low end of the totem pole. I'd be in the car with Chris and Barack Obama would call him. And then he'd hang up from Barack Obama and turn to me and be like, hey, I want to tell you what the president just said to me, right? Like that. That's something that you only have when you're traveling somebody. And I learned a lot from Chris. I ran for the legislature about halfway through my time working for him because we had a part-time legislature here in Connecticut. And he was very good about supporting my career. But you know, that that's really kind of how I got into this. That's amazing. What was the seat that opened up just out of curiosity? Was it like, I mean, how did that what was the decision like to actually go from being a staffer to saying, no, I'm gonna run myself? Yeah. So I always thought that I wanted to run and I always wanted to run in my hometown and I never wanted to go to DC. You know, a lot of people who want to work for a member of Congress, they want to go to the Hill and that's fine for them. But I knew I always wanted to run for office. And so I was always on the official side here in the state and and developing relationships and then doing things in my community, right? Trying to organize for better schools and help clean up the, you know, the local community a little bit. And I got very close to the woman who had the state rep seat that was my hometown and a few other communities around it. And she called me up in January and said, hey, just so you know, in a few months, I'm going to announce that I'm retiring and I think that you'd be great. So don't tell anybody and I'm not going to tell anybody, but go out and start, you know, having coffee with people and getting to know people. And then when the time comes, you'll have my support and, and you'll run. And so I ran, I was 27 in that election. I ran against somebody who... I'd never lost an election and completely thought that I was, 
you know, a lightweight, but I knocked on just over 5,000 doors personally and ruined a couple pairs of shoes. And then I won by 10 points in that election and served for eight years after that. That's amazing. Never underestimate young people. No, <laughs> one no. of the lessons, one of the many lessons. That's an, that's a great story. It's great. It's also a great lesson about networking and just relationships and how important that is. But let's turn the page and talk a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing or uh, that you were doing as a legislator and then also continue, of course, in your role as comptroller. One of the themes or one of the issues that you've worked throughout your career on has been healthcare. You yeah. shared the insurance committee in the legislature, did some amazing work, all kinds of fronts, pre-existing conditions, cost of insulin, mental health. I mean, lots of things. Tell me a little bit about why you're clearly so passionate about that issue. Yeah. And you did both looking backwards, but now you're continuing this work. I see that you're doing yeah. statewide um, some of these healthcare, I don't know what you're calling them, town halls or roundtables around the state. Yeah. Tell me about that. You mentioned my dad earlier. My parents split up when I was six and my dad moved back to New York where he was from. And I was raised primarily by a single mom in the town of Guilford in Connecticut, right outside of New Haven, where my mom was actually born and raised from. And my mom ran a small business and almost never had health insurance when I was growing up and she was working hard and every dollar that she ever earned was keeping the lights on and paying our rent and paying her employees. And so my first real awareness that something was wrong with our healthcare system was with my mom, right? Because when she got sick, she would almost never go to the doctor unless she was really, really sick. And then if she was really, really sick, she would be paying cash when everyone else would be using an insurance card. And I didn't really understand what that meant when I was super little. But then the older I got, the more I realized that it actually wasn't just my mom that was having problems with this. It was a lot of people in our society. And so it was one of the, the main reasons why I wanted to run for office. And as you said, once I got there, I spent most of my time in my first three terms exclusively on healthcare. In my last term, I chaired the budget committee. And so I was knee deep in, in balancing the state budget. But for the first six years, just tried every day to move the needle and make healthcare more accessible and affordable in our state. And that was for me personal because I had seen what had happened with my mom. When I was in college, I didn't have insurance just because when I turned 18, you know, I got kicked off my dad's plan at the time. This is pre-ACA days when, you know, you could sort of easily get insurance. And, you know, I got my wisdom teeth out and didn't have Novocaine or get put under because I couldn't afford to do that. You know, I think, again, like I said with my mom, there's a lot of people out there that are experiencing this. And the more I realized how many people that were, the more I realized we had a problem and I just wanted to try to solve it. Yeah, no, it's so, that's a terrible story about your wisdom teeth, by the way, but it is, it had been, and obviously the AC has done a lot, but continues to be a really, one of those issues that people feel like are so intractable. They almost want to go and throw up their hands and be like, I just don't know how we fix it. So it's so telling that this is such an important issue to you. What are you trying to accomplish with some of the summits that you're holding around the state now? And what, what can you do as comptroller in terms of moving the needle on healthcare? Yeah. So what I found in the legislature was that I had a lot of power within the building, but nobody knew who I was outside of it. And that's what a lot of state legislators experience where, you know, there's a bubble of a capital and a lot of people listening to this that serve in, you know, state office would understand what I'm saying. But then the powerful forces that try to stop what you try to do sometimes in that building have a lot more reach than you do as a singular state rep or a state senator, because they have money and they have resources. And so part of the reason why I decided to run for comptroller was because I kind of made it a bet with myself that if I was elected to stay in office and could command more profile, 
I wouldn't have the direct ability that I did as a legislator to pass a bill, but I could use the platform to try to influence things inside the Capitol way better than I could as one of 151 state reps. And, you know, we're six months into this political science experiment, but so far it's working in the sense that I can go and do a summit somewhere in our state and have hundreds of people there because from all over our state, because they know that I'm a statewide elected official working on this issue. And what I'm trying to do is over the course of this year is every month do a different summit. We started with rural healthcare. Yesterday was LGBTQIA plus community, urban healthcare, maternal healthcare, all these different things. And after each of these roundtable, we form a subcommittee of people that are in that. At the end of the year, we'll release this big report and we'll have recommendations in that report of what we can do both in my capacity as the comptroller, what the legislature can do, what the private sector can do to make healthcare more accessible and affordable in Connecticut and really beat the drum for that and start a campaign and a movement, frankly, to bring about more healthcare reform in Connecticut. And so we're sort of in the early fact gathering part of this, but I think a lot of my four years in office will be building up and trying to just build a coalition for change. It's not easy as to your point, healthcare is very complicated. It's very, very wonky. There's so many different, there's no silver bullet solution to it. But what I found in the legislature and what I think I'm going to find here is that if we can chip away at problems, I think that we'll get closer to making it a better system for everybody, including people like my mom. Yeah, no, that, that's so wonderful. And I'm excited to kind of follow along what you're doing on that front. And to the extent you're learning lessons that will be helpful for new leaders across the country, we want to be highlighting that work. Yeah. So, so thank you for that. This taking on intractable, seemingly really complicated problem seems to be something that you are particularly both interested in and good at, (laughs) which is a huge compliment. That's what government's supposed to do, right? Is solve these these really hard problems. So another one that you've been looking at is pension reform and looking at the municipal employees retirement system in Connecticut. This is exciting because this is something that you've actually also really made huge progress on to, to broker a deal and to come forward to the legislature with a reform proposal that passed the House, right? With yeah. a bipartisan support, which is important in these days to really emphasize that. Is that actually, I want to hear about how you did it, what you did, and, and just understand, is that now a law or is that still going to the Senate or where where are we in the process? Yeah, no, it passed both chambers and the, the governor is going to sign it. He has not physically signed it yet, but he's planning to sign the, the bill. And, you know, just to back up when I took office in January and I kind of went to comptroller school, you know, they gave me a 150 page binder of all the different things I need to learn. And one of the issues was that my office runs the municipal pension system for about two thirds of the communities in Connecticut. So 107 of our 169 towns are part of this plan. For many years, the plan has been in a lot of trouble, just like many pension funds across the United States. What the head of our pension division said to me is like, hey, you know, you got to send this letter out to all these towns telling them that their contribution rates are going to go up. By the way, they've gone up 75% on these towns in the last five years alone, which for municipal leaders that are listening, they know that's just unsustainable, right? You can only cut so many crucial services at a town city level. You can only raise property taxes by so much before it becomes unsustainable. Rather than kick the can, I decided to kind of just say, hey, well, why has nobody ever done this before? Why have they not reformed this? And they said, well, nobody's reformed this since 1947. So I'm just somebody who, as you said, I like these intractable problems. And I think a big part of it, Debbie, is that I'm not afraid to fail trying to solve them. And I think a lot of people in public office are sometimes really afraid to take on these big issues 
because they think that failure will somehow hurt their career or their forward progress or their momentum and that it will somehow tar them. And I kind of have the opposite belief, which is that I think if voters or citizens see that you're trying to solve hard problems and maybe you come up short, I think they give you credit for that. And they at least say, hey, man, for the first time since the Harry Truman in presidency, you're trying to solve something that's causing me a lot of problems. And I tell people all the time, like, they're like, what did you do? What's the secret? Well, the secret is just trying because trying is half the battle. But we brought in labor, all the unions from these workers and all the mayors and first selectmen and around a really big conference table in my office over six weeks, we came to an agreement and that passed the legislature and it will save those communities $740 million over the next 30 years without doing it at the expense of the workers and just through a little bit of reforms and everybody giving a little bit, which is central to any negotiation, we were able to really fix the problem and save the pension fund from going under, which will hopefully have some really, really good positive impacts on the communities in Connecticut that we serve. I guess I'm a victim of my own success because now other people are saying, hey, can you come help with this? Can you come up with that? And so again, to anybody listening that's that's thinking about this and serving in public office, dive in is my advice to you. And if you fail, it's okay. Trying is what really matters. And by trying, you may actually solve the problem. Before we continue the conversation, I want to let you in on a tool that's been transforming the way political comms and digital teams of all sizes work. The tool is Hashtag Viral, the newsletter, brought to you by our friends at Girl in the Gov. Hashtag Viral brings social media content ideas, platform explainers, and best practices through a political application lens to inboxes every Tuesday. This skip the meeting, make it an email method of social media consulting has saved teams time and money all the while providing easy to apply content concepts across all major platforms. Covering the works from Instagram and TikTok to YouTube and Twitter, Hashtag Viral shares pertinent updates on platform features and best practices. Best yet, it's a resource designed by two political influencers who know the intersection of politics and social media like the back of their hands. To subscribe, visit www.girlinthegov.com backslash newsletter. Now, back to our episode. I love that so much. And first, congrats. That's a huge accomplishment, something that we probably need to look at in terms of lessons learned and what other people can do around the country. But I want to just dive in on that whole theme you're talking about right now about failure, which I think is so, so, so important. And I feel like it's there's lots of issues. We can go on and on. There's lots of issues in politics, right? There's issues about where the incentives are to kind of stick your neck out. I think that's aligned with what you're saying, right? So, I mean, it's like politics, you sometimes get rewarded for not doing, for kind of staying under the radar, right? And so by you know, sticking your neck out and trying, and, and, and if you do end up failing, of course, you didn't in this case, but somehow that's going to lead to you getting more attention, negative attention and not winning. Or on the opposite side, we've got a lot of people, or not the opposite side, but another thought, you know, we've got a lot of people who feel like the best way to do well in politics is to just be loud and extreme, but don't really need to do any work, right? The more outrageous things you say, which kind of can be an anathema to actually solving problems. So I kind of, you know, anything else you want to say about your view on how you see the political realities as they are and, and how you're approaching your job? Yeah, well, a couple of things. So I now have had the transition from being in the legislative branch to the executive branch, and they're two very, very different jobs. As a legislator, you can scream about things and tweet things and criticize things and try to pass a bill. But if you don't, it's not the end of the world. 
Now, as an executive, I have to run an agency that's responsible, like I said, for buying healthcare for 300,000 people. I run a pension system. I'm running an audit system. You know, it's not something that I can just kind of take my ball and go home if I don't get my way. That's one thing. The second thing is that, you know, there's a there's a perverse incentive for people in politics today. You just kind of touched on this, that if I fire up my Twitter account right now, and tweet about my pension reform, it's going to be like a, a dust cloud going by the, the Twitter space. If I tweet something about our former president or the governor of Florida and talk about some, some hot issues, I may get a lot of play online. But I think it's really important for people to remember that Twitter is not real life. Facebook is not real life. The people who engage with you on social media represent a very, very small fraction of the electorate. I think that's a powerful lesson that people need to learn because sometimes when they're like, oh man, you know, my tweets about municipal pension reform, my op-ed about fiscal responsibility and all these things, it got no attention from this platform, especially for young people who are much more well-versed and skilled at social media. There's a tendency where you're like, okay, this isn't working. Let me stop doing this. And I think that that's not great because when you think about the broader population, um, those are the people who are watching the nightly news. They're reading newspapers still in some cases. You're not always going to get the immediate gratification you get online, but that does not mean that you should not be working on issues that speak more to people who might not be giving that instant gratification. Also, I would say is that nobody is like holding a rally on the lawn of the town square demanding that we fix sewers or that we fix everyday problems for people, that does not make them being solved bad things. I would find issues that are relevant to your community, to your state, problems that nobody has wanted to solve or nobody's been able to solve and just try to dive in. And I guarantee that while you may not have the immediacy of the gratification of getting a thousand likes on a tweet, people are grateful that you're solving that problem and you're doing it in a way that looks constructive, not just saying something that's your opinion and and trying to get people to agree with you politically on something. Yeah, absolutely. This kind of goes into one other thing I wanted to highlight that you're doing that I just thought was super interesting. And it goes into this whole idea of being somebody who helps make government work and why that's so important to me. I think in this time and era, we find ourselves that, I mean, I feel like where we are with ours, the state of our democracy, the state of a lot of things is not an accident. I was talking to Somebody else for a podcast this week are talking about the long arc of history and where we find ourselves. But, you know, that this has essentially been a 30-year assault on the government's the problem, it's the enemy, and how important it is that we actually have people who are in elected office that, A, don't believe that, and B, are doing something to try to fix things. Because those people might not be on the town square calling for sewers to be, you know, fixed or whatever, but they're assuming government's going to do it. And when it doesn't yeah. happen, that reinforces this negative stereotype about government. So the thing that you were doing that I wanted to, to flag is this, I think you call it comp time, where you go out and you shadow different municipal or sorry, different employees in government that that you oversee, as you said, in terms of paying them. And it sounds like I'd let, I'm going to hear what you've done and what is your favorite, but you've done all kinds of interesting things. But I really love that when I read about that, because it just struck me as such a great idea in a way to just remind people what government does. And I don't know if that was your goal, but you know, what does government do and why is it important to you? And hey, by the way, it's actually working or we're making it work. Tell me about that effort. I mean, yeah, you're hitting on it, right? We've had a purposeful assault on institutions and, and government certainly is one of those things. And I heard all the time during my campaign, we gotta 
fire all the state workers. We should cut their benefits. They're all lazy. They don't do anything for us. There's this perception out there. And so I did this thing called comp time and I, I spend a day a month shadowing somebody. It's not always my traditional work day because that's also the point, right? So I shadowed the class of recruits at our state police academy for a day, started bright early in the morning and following these guys screaming in the hallways. And it's like a military style boot camp during a snowstorm in February. I spent the entire evening with one guy in a plow on Interstate 91 in Connecticut, just plowing the road, right? And for me, that was one of the most important ones because all of us during a snowstorm, we maybe take a little time off of work and we make some hot cocoa, we play with our kids outside, and we don't think about that there's hundreds of people out there doing this dangerous job so that in the morning... I can go to work. I can bring my kid to school. I can go to that doctor's appointment that I need to get to for my health. And these unsung people and unsung heroes that ride a plow truck for 18 hours and don't go to sleep and don't see their family and they take a nap on a cot in a garage are the kind of people that make Connecticut work. I just thought that by doing that every month and trying to draw attention to people, I could help just get people to understand how many people actually serve our state every single day. And when you combine that with solving problems, which is what I think government needs to do, but people don't think they can do anymore because they just believe fundamentally that our system is so broken and so polarized that there's no way on earth that they can do that, or frankly, that we're not real people. And you know, I'm 36, I'm the youngest person ever to have this job. And I see people all the time who are just surprised that I can like have a conversation with them or that I email them back if they write me a note. The bar is so low right now in public service that anything that you're doing to solve problems, communicate people in an honest way, hear people, listen to people, I just think you're, well, at least I view it as I'm on a person by person, day by day crusade to get people to believe in government again. And I think it works. It's never going to convince everybody. But the more we do things like this, I think the better we're going to be as a democracy, to your point, long term. I totally agree. So let me just ask, finish by asking, so are you optimistic that we can get there? I want to say yes. Let's just say yes. No, go ahead. <laughs> I think that there are every day, there are more challenges that are making it harder and harder for us to get there whether that's technology, whether it's the consolidation of media, whether it's the lack of media, whether it's the lack of trust in institutions. But I'm still somebody, and I'll just tell you the story, is that when I was a state rep, I used to do coffee and conversations. And I would intentionally not stage it like a town hall where I would stand in the front of the room as if I was above people. I would sit everybody in a circle. And undoubtedly, once you serve in public office, you get to be a pretty good read of body language. And I could see the demeanors of some people that came in there just to yell at me, who came in there just to tell me, you know, what was on their mind and and say, Scanlon, you know, I think you suck at your job, right? And there's the reasons why, or you should just do all these things. But a funny thing would happen, and it was a small sample size, you know, you usually never get more than 30 or 40 people at these things. But within those 30 or 40 people, a funny thing would happen, which is that a woman would come in there and say, we need to just cut spending, right? It's Let's just cut all the spending in government. And then the person sitting in the chair next to them would say, hey, you know what? I came here, Sean, because I'm a dad of a child with a developmental disability. And you haven't funded our agency at all. You have been cutting our agency. And because of that, my child can't get these services. And somebody else would say, you know, I'm here because 
my elderly parent can't get the social edition he needs because they they did these things. And you kind of see people being like, well, wait a minute, I guess I never really thought about that before. I never really thought that that's why somebody else would be here. And you ended up having this really civil discussion about these things way more than you can with cable news and politicians giving speeches on the floor of the House representatives. And so I am optimistic that if we actually get back to talking to one another and interacting with each other as a community, whether it's at your local town hall or at the state house, the more we can talk and engage with one another, I think the better we're going to be into rebuilding trust between one another to the point that we can solve problems. And I saw that all the time in the legislature. I would work with the most conservative MAGA Republicans who I may not agree with on a lot of issues, but they didn't think that people should be paying $1,000 for insulin for their kids, or they didn't think the pension fund should be undervalued and underfunded. And can we fix that? Right. And I've had some strange partners in the work that I do, but all of that is possible through conversation. And Chris Murphy, my former boss, I think is proving that at the federal level that that is even possible today because of what he did last year on gun violence and what he's trying to do right now on immigration and a number of topics. I think it's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better, but I'm optimistic that at the end of the day, if we start talking to one another, if we start actually trying to solve problems, the general population wants us to do that. And those of us who do it will be rewarded. And hopefully some of the people who are not in politics for the right reasons or are there to be entertainers or bomb throwers will start to be less and less at the forefront. And the people who want to solve problems will be put in their place. I hope. I hope so too. And I, I mean, I couldn't agree with everything you just said more. And I do think to it's actually a self-fulfilling prophecy a little bit that some of that work is done under the radar, like you said, that the people didn't show, you know, that they show up 30 or 40 people at a time. So, you know, I hope that this is happening. I know you're doing it. I know other New Deal leaders are doing it. I know other state and local elected officials are doing it. We're going to end on an optimistic note that I think that you're right. And I think that by doing that, that we will see a change that we need and that we deserve. And I, I'm, I remain optimistic too. I can't tell you how much fun I had talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on today and telling us all about what you're working on. And we'll keep an eye on all these amazing things you're doing on healthcare and, and other reforms and try to highlight those across the country. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I love New Deal. I've made some really great lasting relationships. And you know, if anybody's listening out here who wants to talk at any point, I'm always happy to talk to a fellow New Deal leader and find ways to collaborate. And we're already working on some stuff with people like Brooke right now. But to the extent that anyone else is out there, would love to find ways to work together. And thank you, Debbie, for all that you do for us at New Deal. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for being on. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.